0: My name is Dan. I'm Jonathan. And we are... Trying to help modern dudes, dads, and disciples find and use wisdom to mature in manhood. And we're doing that because being a man is a challenge. It's so challenging. We could give you countless examples, but it's likely that you who are listening don't even know how to define it, much less how to be one. What does manhood even mean? Yeah. And we've been kind of sitting on this definition now for, you know,
1: probably a couple months and the more we sit on it i think the more we really like it and the joyful pursuit of sacrificial responsibility there it is makes an awful lot of sense and um it is a a very well put together a few words there if you think about that it's not just a pursuit it's a joyful pursuit and it's not just responsibility it's sacrificial responsibility so there's an awful lot there to really
0: you know dive into it actually reminds me of what David Gilmore says, and he says that manhood is the defeat of childhood narcissism. Mm. So that's a that's a pretty good, uh, I think, helpful supplemental definition, too, that if you think of childhood as being, I mean, profoundly narcissistic in some ways, right, yeah. self-absorbed, manhood is the defeat of that. It's overcoming that in, in the form of a journey. And today we'll talk about the shift from self to others. Boys are about themselves themselves. Men are about others. So we're going to look at that shift today, starting with this question, what does this others-centered approach even look like? Mm -hmm. That's a great question,
1: and uh, I think certainly from the Christian perspective, we have a great model of this, what this looks like, an incredible, perfect example of and that's the person of Jesus. And um, when you think about how he humbled himself, how he emptied himself, um, not for himself, not to live for himself, but to
0: ultimately provide life for others, Um, that that sums it up pretty good. Sir, what comes to mind is you have the ultimate example, right, of somebody who joyfully pursues sacrificial responsibility. There it is. And he does that. And it's described this way in the New Testament, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Or it was the joy set before him that he pursued sacrificial responsibility uh, that ended in the execution on the cross. So, I mean, he's the ultimate example of what this manhood looks like and also what this others-centered shift looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, if you think about that in
1: terms of, let's start with kind of the the boyish approach, the self centered
0: approach. What is what can that look like? Uh, I mean, when you think about John Tyson's uh, perspective, he says is basically it's it's just makes you live like your. Being a boy makes you live like you're the center of the universe. I mean, Mm -hmm. and part of the challenge in modern life is that our entire culture and lives exist as a kind of a blank canvas And the idea is that this blank canvas is my life and I'm gonna spend the rest of my life filling up my canvas my own pursuits in order to uh, in order to be fulfilled so as a boy there's no concept of the common good Mm -hmm. there's no concept of obligations that I've got to the greater community around me the neighborhood or even my own family it's just you doing you and the world exists to expand your rights and your privileges yeah and that's the boyish approach and that's what you inherit as a boy From the main messaging of of what currently is happening in our culture. I think that's especially true of us in the West. Uh, If you do
1: just a little bit of study and, and you look at like something like maybe like Japanese culture. That's not a thing. No. You know, that sort of indiv- individualistic approach. Things are about me, what I want, when I want it. You know, how am I going to get it? And you're, and you're primarily self-focused. That's very, what we'll call it, a, a kind of an American culture. Um, whereas, you know, interestingly, in a place like Japan, they've got this sort of like collective culture. Which, I mean, not commun- communist, but right. collective. Which just means like, it, it, it. we think about it in terms of like a family. Like a family exists not as an individual thing but as a group right yeah. and and they work for like the common good of the family and i think also in addition to that like when families get in trouble it's when they start thinking individualistically. Right. Right. And and, and and you start pulling apart and pulling away from each other and you end up in your bedroom for 12 hours and you like barely just like, you know, kind of like a, a little wave to mom or dad in the morning. And then you, you know, see him again at night. And, and as things become more individualistic, they become typically more problematic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and painful, and then you've got now this fuel, this ultimate poison, uh, that is hypercharging that individualism in just our social media, right? And mm-hmm. you cannot ignore what's happening with social media. When you have social media feeds, you only see what you want to see, right? That's I right. mean, it's hyper focused on leveraging your own self, your own identity, your own desires, your own wants, your own vanity. And yeah. if you're a narcissist, it's it's just uh, it's an outlet. It really is. It's a hypercharged way to uh, t- to. To exhibit that Yeah
1: And I think over time As those algorithms Do what they're programmed to do Your social media feed is Becomes a mirror Yeah It yeah. just looks more and more like you What you value What's yeah. important to you What you care about Who you care about And it's just You know, there's not a lot of room for um, other opinions and
0: um, other voices. And I think that's probably where we get the idea of Bridezilla. (laughs) Bridezilla goes around terrorizing a venue because (laughs) she has in her mind what her preferences are. And she's willing to just like dismember uh, employees of the venue. Right. I do wonder if there's any Bridezillas in Japan. I mean, how ironic would it be <laughs> that, that the country where Godzilla <laughs> originates, there's no Bridezillas? Uh, there was would really no, ar- there was no pun intended there. Would that be ironic? It really wasn't. And right, way, maybe a little. Maybe is a little. Japan where bri- or, uh, Bride or
1: Godzilla, g- yes. It's yeah. where
0: Godzilla originated. I didn't want to get my Asian countries mixed uh, up. You know, <laughs> I mean, so on that topic, St. Augustine says the problem in essence of what sin is. Is that all of our love is turned inward towards ourselves, and so as a result, we end up sort of inhibiting our own growth um, and become essentially become people whose hearts are closed off to other needs, other uh, people, their differences, their uh, the value, and and um, being emotionally engaged with people. And certainly, this could make us bad people, bad neighbors, and we're we end up being bad employees and especially bad partners in any relationship, whether it's marital or siblings you know it's just it's just bad when all of our love is turned inward towards ourselves and the goal of maturity in life is to kind of come out of ourselves come toward other people we don't mean that it's problematic To take care of yourself. We don't mean it's problematic to think, you know what, I got to get in the gym. I got to start watching my nutrition better. I need more sleep. I have to take care of myself. But what we mean is kind of like pampering, catering. Um, I don't even mean prioritizing. I mean, uh, what do we mean by... Uh, self-catering, self-development, self-care. We mean, like, your. Uh, here's what it is. Your entire identity should be devoted to developing yourself. Yeah, it's a hyper-focus. Advancing yourself, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. It's not like, I have to be healthy... So that I can care for other people, parent well, do my job well. It's it's beyond that. Your right. whole existence is to develop, advance, and care for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's what we mean by that. So, and you're right. It's counterproductive because people who are hyper focused on their own comfort and happiness are awful people to be around. Didn't yeah. we used to call those people spoiled brats? Yeah,
1: or 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 I think the new term is narcissist. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And it is difficult to be around them. There's no, there's no doubt. I think we can all identify. Uh, some of the some of the narcissists
0: that we've come in contact with well on social media. It's well documented They film themselves and right. you can tell pretty quick. They're battling some kind of emotional or mental illness or disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so human maturity when we're talking about maturing in manhood We're literally talking about the process of lifting your eyes upward yeah. and outward the idea that marriage is primarily a source of happiness for myself. So if I go into my marriage with that idea, then my spouse is just a tool that I leverage to make myself happy Mm. and vice versa. Right. And... The damage that's done by that is incredibly intense. Rather than the idea that marriage is the way to cultivate a family and to contribute to the cultivating the the, the neighborhoods and developing civilization and so on, um, mm-hmm. and and we would say in glorifying God with our purpose and our in our existence for Him to kind of help become help us become holy in marriage. If it's happiness first, it really it really undermines our happiness rather than bringing our happiness and this is supported by all the research is showing the same thing that happiness is not a direct product of pursuing your own happiness Mm -hmm. it's an indirect product that you never get by by chasing happiness right yeah it's an interesting paradox
1: because you would you would think naturally that if, if you want to increase your own happiness, you you're mostly concerned with yourself. Right. And it, and it turns out that the more you serve and the more that you love your spouse, not only the happier that they are, but somehow <laughs> the happier
0: that we are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's strange? And I, I'm finding this more and more, John, that popular secular research is discovering the same Mm -hmm. and is it it literally without certainly without intending to is advancing this same judeo-christian design or narrative and psychological research is showing us that when we consider other people we put their needs at least as an equal with our own that we human beings are more emotional emotionally healthy and those same people are less anxious and they're less depressed and Literally, this research in our culture, our pop culture, is catching up to what religious traditions have always taught. Mm -hmm. So, that's interesting to me. It is. How do we help
1: uh, young men make the shift from self to others? Um, Especially when they're growing up in an environment that really, you know, (laughs) insulates the self. Right.
0: Well, I know that, for me, it's an ongoing and my wife and I work pretty hard on this. It's an ongoing need to communicate to our kids that are in our home. They're still young, right? In this case, they would be still young. Mm -hmm. Just continue to communicate to them that you're a contributor in this family, right? That, that would require you to get out of your room out from in front of the TV. Let's get you plugged into what's happening in our house. My wife does that with the kids in the kitchen, with the chores around the inside. Let's team up. Let's do this project together. Uh, For me, It would be we're going to work on this together. We're going to hit the lawn together. I'm going to show you how to cut the grass together. We're going to um, whatever the project is. Or I like to if I'm running errands, I want to I want to kind of pry my kid out of the house, make it fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we've done work together, we'll take a trip and get some Slurpees when they were little, we have lots of pictures of of things like that or any other way to just make it fun being together. But essentially what we're doing is saying, I'm going to give you an opportunity to get out of your room. And uh, and force you to avoid aloneness. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's also
1: interesting that if you were to pull most teenagers and ask them about you know the sort of meaningful stuff in their life and and some of the memories that they might have looking back, it's it's never like the time that they spent watching TV. It's never the time they spent playing video games and et cetera. It's almost always
0: quality time. It It is always time spent. Yeah. And it, we just can't underestimate that as dads, right? It's hard to. It's hard to. Um, totally. And even and when your kids get older and they get busy social schedules, this is something I struggle with because of my personality style, I don't really want to interrupt or disrupt. So when my kids get cranking with a lot of social right, stuff and they right. get a lot of activity going, they, they're going here, there and everywhere. I don't have the personality style that interrupts and disrupts them. So I have to it, it oftentimes takes a really, really stern self-talk or I have to hear from my wife or someone else to say, "Ooh, I have to pursue that. I have to intervene to be a part of their lives. Uh, otherwise, you know, you just end up being kind of a wallflower. But, mm-hmm. you know, when when we grow up. Um, we kind of discover that we've been created to contribute to what God is cultivating in the world. And as parents, we're kind of saying to our, our, our family, our kids in our house that this God's created us to participate in the world. The world is in genuine need and we can, we can start small in what we're contributing. When you're growing up, um, you start small by getting involved with people uh, in, in our case, in our context, John, some of the relationships with people, brings a lot of value because people are different right mm-hmm. so you're you 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 have to and we've, we've kind of laughed about this over the years that you, you always it's pretty intense when you're around someone who believes that their way is the only way mm-hmm. and every other way is wrong yeah right we get a kick out of that idea because if you are raising your kids to be a part of other people's mm-hmm. lives which are also hoping hoping is that they discover other ways are different and they're valuable and beautiful and there's a whole That's bunch right. of different ways to yeah. be a family right or to cook a meal or to prefer a vacation uh, and so we have the advantage of these church family adults you get the kids around church family adults and they get loved on and the adults meet the needs that our kids have for foundational people that they like and who love them deeply. And, uh, that's so helpful. Yeah.
1: That kind of touches on that, that idea of collectivism that, that we had talked about before, especially with folks who, who believe that they, you know, their, their way is sort of the only way and they, they've got an an angle on things and stuff, but it, it really discounts the collective knowledge that you have in a community, yeah. Specifically, like we're we're talking about in a church community. I don't know everything, right? And that's like step one, recognizing that. But then recognizing it, like, oh, somebody else might know more about this, yeah, than I do, and I can really benefit right. from the collective knowledge of the group. There's a subject matter expert somewhere, right, on what almost any topic, yep. And why not take advantage of that? I mean, it takes a it takes a good,
0: healthy dose of humility. Number one, it does, right. And I love the idea that my kids be exposed to people who can challenge their perceptions on things and challenge their understandings on things and help them see and acknowledge that there's so many differences in the world, even among Christian tribes, there's different. There's different uh, perceptions and differences, and we want to. These are people that we love. They're different, but we get an example to to show the our kids what it looks like to love them, and then we resist comparing ourselves to outsiders because we believe we're um, because we wrongly believe we're perfect or flawless mm-hmm. or even worse that we're that we're righteous. And really, Jesus hits this hard on this topic when he's talking about loving other people, and he's basically like, uh, "So consider the Good Samaritan, mm. right?" And then he tells a story about the Samaritan who uh, essentially what he means is look around, look beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. And the basic point of the the parable of the Good Samaritan is that he's wanting to make the the, the basic point that he's wanting to make Jesus. That is, is that your neighbor is whoever is in front of you with a need. And Mm -hmm. when you view loving your neighbor as you love yourself um, and that's whoever's in front of you. With a need, that's an opportunity to get beyond yourself Mm -hmm. and to not to overcome the biases and the tribes and the so on. And and so those who those who are taught to go beyond themselves and they repair the world, even in a small way, uh, most of us aren't going to live Instagram famous big lives. But we can live really meaningful lives if we're just looking for needs in front of us, uh, especially by people that aren't our own family, that aren't ourselves. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that usually comes through incremental changes, and we expose our kids to that, teach them to be proactive, forget about yourself, embrace the difficulty of those things. And that's a gift that we give to our next generation, and they're often the small ways that they're learning that best. Right, yeah. Do you remember any moment, I'm sure you do, if we thought about it, we could think of the moment we realized our kids were watching the way we treat people? Absolutely. And when... We are uh, functioning with other people uh, around our kids. Uh, we have the opportunity to humanize other people, right? Mm-hmm. To help them get into other people's shoes and emphasize what might be happening with them. I remember um, doing this with Justin Bieber. He was like, fr- he was like freaking out. You, you were know? hanging out with Justin Bieber. Well, it wasn't the it wasn't the last time I was hanging out with him. It was the first oh, time. Oh, 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 uh, yeah, gotcha. So uh, we were. Uh, we were watching Justin Bieber go through a really tough time in mm-hmm. whatever phase of life he was in. And and I remember um, that my kids had come across some Christian friends who were really, really harsh, um, really critical, um, had a lot of really awful things to say about him and his music and anyone who listened to his music. And mm. I remember kind of leveraging that to say, we should pray for Justin Bieber and uh, mm-hmm. you know we started listening to his music when those new songs were dropping and we'd listen and I would say man he he's so talented God's really put a lot of talent in him and we began to pray for him and my my thought was that it's a good example of modeling Caring for someone who isn't doing things the way we are, or who isn't right. like us, or isn't in our Christian tribe. Of course, we know later on he comes to saving faith. I just know that my kids noticed when other Christians were harsh, and uh, yeah. and 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 um, it was much easier, much more I think valuable for my kids when we humanized other people. They are watching our response, right? Oh, someone cuts you off in the car, and you're screaming at them. Or are you assuming the best? And yeah, and when your kids are like, oh, "What an idiot!" I yeah. mean, how could they do that? Why not? Why don't we say, oh, I wonder if they're late. Yeah. Uh, m- I wonder if they're anxious about their kid's first day of school. Or what if they're angry about their crumbling marriage or they're distracted mm-hmm. by battling a disease or right. a dying parent. And those are the things in my life now that I've had experiences where I'm like, man, this is what's happening to people when they're awful. Yeah, Especially when they're mistreating you or they're ripping you off at the restaurant or they're distracted, they're not serving your table the right way or they're, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps um, just kind of jerky in general. Yeah. We have to teach in the small moments and, and help kids see that we're just thinking about other people to totally. like put yourself in their shoes totally that's yeah. so
1: important but I, you know and I also think in addition to that we're not gonna get that right all the time you no. know we're gonna we're gonna mess that up there, there well, gonna, you are yeah in I'm particularly I, I can give many examples <laughs> for sure of you know being upset with someone you know like you mentioned someone cutting you off in a car um, are you gonna get that right every time no you're not but I think what's important is to sort of like circle back around to that moment too, you know, and, in a little bit of, um, admission there with your kids that man, dad, dad blew that. That was ridiculous. I, I can't even tell you why I react like that. You know, oh, it's because I'm selfish. You know, yeah, and I'm interested in like getting where I'm going as quickly as I can. I don't care about anybody else on the road, that's that's my default, you know. And so, admitting that working through that with your kids was that hard for you when you first started doing that, probably more important than like
0: getting it right. Was it hard for you when you first started to learn that? Did you have a hard time telling your kids, I did the wrong thing, I did it the wrong way, or did that kind of flow? No, I think
1: I, I think I probably. Did that more naturally because that wasn't something that we really did in my house, so you'd think the opposite oh if you experienced that as a kid then oh. you would do that but I think as a as a reaction to that sure and knowing ah oh, that's that's probably something that I could have used <laughs> i I you know I, I'm a little bit more um willing to 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 go there with the kids and say yeah I mean it's I just something I learned you know from my parents about you know maybe what not to do
0: in, yeah. a, in a moment like that you know yeah. Uh as great as my parents are. Right. <laughs> I know that our kids don't like having their own mistakes and, and you know, when they misfire pointing that out is uncomfortable. Especially if you do it harshly. Mm-hmm. Right. It's gonna be counterproductive. Um but being able to point out our own flaws and uh use kind of ourselves indirectly, um by modeling to our kids that when we say things like "I need to tell you something," I, I just need to apologize. I realized I was I was so angry, or I raised my voice, and I did it disrespectfully. And here I am trying to teach you to be respectful, and I'm disrespecting you, or yeah, or, or so even important. raising my voice in an intimidating way, getting your face, and now I'm going to kind of bully you around because I have ultimate authority you know being able to say to our kids that's got nothing to do with you that was me i'm sorry i did that and Mm -hmm. i'm I'm literally literally i'm afraid i'm projecting that fear and frustration onto you and I just think that goes such a long way in helping us to kind of purge self-righteousness totally. and, and 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 demonstrate what it looks like to be someone who belongs to Jesus and who's functioning in grace and forgiveness. And then being able to kind of let that flow in, inside the house and modeling in front of that kids, in front of our kids, you know, especially with our spouse or even our adult coworkers. Why not our own family? It's so much more powerful than little sermons or devotions on forgiveness and humility totally right? totally instead you give them a vivid picture for themselves okay I see what it looks like I can treat other people humbly mm-hmm. just like my dad does and mm-hmm. I can ask for forgiveness when I when I misfire just like my dad does and it's yeah. such a kind of sets a relational tone that really does set them up to live well and purge self-righteousness I think And yeah I don't think it humility. comes
1: naturally either Dan you know in terms of like number one admitting that you messed up but also like mm-hmm. asking for forgiveness from someone you know um i don't know subservient might be the right word but like our children right going to them humbly and saying you know here's how i messed up and would you forgive me is it that's a huge that's a huge step you know because there's no one there's nothing that says you have to do that no but um, you're
0: transferring power a little bit to those little people yeah yeah and I think um, that helps us to point out that being right is way overrated. Mm. You think of all the parents that have sacrificed the relationship with their kids, oh, and they've totally. done so because they're right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, being yeah. right is the ultimate, right? The ultimate That's such a good kind of point. like um, the ultimate. Um, principle at home rather than cultivating relationship and demonstrating humility and forgiveness and, and, and just othersness mm-hmm. in that way, which in my opinion would be far more fruitful than just being right all the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's important for us to drop the, I need to be right in the eyes of my children and, and instead replace that with, I'm going to demonstrate what it looks like when you're wrong or um, mm-hmm. uh, help them to kind of get a tool to deal with being wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we also, I mean, we got to recognize immaturity is lurking in our selfishness. Immature people make even serving others about themselves, right? They, they're going to serve someone else, or they're going to do something for someone else. And they're kind of thinking, I, I I hope they appreciate yeah, me. For not this. really for
1: them. It's for, right. f-
0: for me. Yeah. Right. So, um, I'm going to make the shift from myself to others, but I'm going to do it to look good, to be noticed, to Mm. be uh, admired. It could be anywhere, right? At work, at church, or just uh, for a friend. And you might, you might be, you might not be told thank you for it. And if our kids grasp that, that it might be overlooked, it might not even be because the people are inconsiderate or a lot of, uh, it could be because there's a lot going on in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and if there's a lot going on in their life, some people just don't take the time to recognize what you've done for them. But, uh, the important thing is that we're communicating to our kids that you still got to do it anyway. And yep. you have to have the courage to do the good, the right thing. And even if one's not going to really recognize that you've done it. And the reason we do that is because Jesus teaches this selflessness as a method of bearing his image. It bears God's image to be selfless and it reflects and represents who God is. And of course, we, we get that in the the Sermon on the Mount um, as well. So uh, you can expect God, to reward you, you don't have to worry about um, being rewarded by people that you're serving or loving or being others centered in, right? It reminds me of two of my favorite proverbs. I absolutely love these proverbs. Uh, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed, Mm -hmm. right? So you may not be thanked, acknowledged, and admired. But uh, when you're generous with your time, love, affection, resources, money, God says in Proverbs, when you're refreshing people, it'll be refreshing. Mm -hmm. So you don't don't need any kind of kickback or feedback from them. And there's another proverb, too, that I love, which is, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he'll reward them for what they have done. God will reward them, Mm -hmm. not the person giving them feedback or admiring them or appreciating them. So, Dan, in terms of like...
1: Just a, a personal experience that you've had with that shift from self to others. Um, give us an example maybe of how that's sort of come about in your
0: life. Um, I, I, my best context is my own family. I think about something that my mom and dad were pretty focused on. There's, there's kind of a handful of things I can think of that my mom and dad were proactively focused on. But they were pretty insistent that I treated my sisters and my mom well. And I think that's a Dr. Dobson principle that they were kind of tuned into. Yeah. So that's easy for me to start with that, that when you're thinking about how do I move my son or my kids from self-centeredness to other-centeredness, the primary way I think of it is serving your family. Yeah. And I still remember the time where I said, I was telling one of the kids, you know, you got to pitch in, we're a team, and uh, this is going to help the team, and you're a part of the team. And uh, I still remember one of them, they were little, they were like, we're not a team, stop saying we're a team, we're a family. (laughs) Like, okay. All right. That
1: was from a movie, I think, I saw that in a movie.
0: (laughs) So, um, but I think of my two sons, you know, what, what greater thrill is there to help them see and visualize and learn to serve their mom and their sisters because I'm doing it mm-hmm. and so we started there so every day uh, Raquel and I are like come on out of your room right where are you uh, there's some humans out here mm-hmm. you know sarcasm never fails No, works every time. That, yeah. uh, and then job two uh, essentially was to participate in and then initiate others work that serves the family so they get small job responsibilities, and those jobs start to increase as their age increases, their capacity increases, their responsibility level increases. And in the church family, it's the same. Start with something easy behind the scenes that no one knows you're doing, but you're committing to it, you're faithful to it, you're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And then as their gifts kind of emerge and as their talents emerge, kind of move along to things that are more and more challenging until eventually you're you're full-fledged with your gift and talent serving your church and you're doing it even though there are times when you'd prefer not to right. uh, Saturday nights, you don't want to kind of um, go to bed early and get ready for Sunday, Sunday morning. You want to kind of do your own thing and go late or not at all. Um, and then of course, because you're serving you're you're kind of emptying yourself, purging yourself. And of course there's so many more outside the home, right? Mm-hmm. What you do for Christmas for other people and so on. But those are the two I think of as your family and your church family that most people can start with. What about you? Yeah. Um, you know, we, and we've talked about this.
1: I mean, when you think about things like um, depression and and just being like dissatisfied in general, I, those those kinds of things are just really on the rise, uh, particularly in men. And so, um, to sort of help curb some of that, I've had you know continuous conversations with my son to sort of curb that and and, and head it off. And um, you know, w- w- one of the things that You know, we're discovering is that, you know, when you root um, your uh, living for yourself and your um, sort of self-serving attitude instead of serving that 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 can be a, a bit of an equation for depression. And and an equation for dissatisfaction, right? It's your life is kind of turned in on itself. And when you think about the um, definition that we're kind of our working definition of manhood, joyful pursuit of sacrificial responsibility, it it makes sense to me. And and I don't really have the numbers to, to sort of back this up, but but it seems like a life that's dedicated to serving would have the ingredients that are necessary for overcoming depression and isolation
0: and, and loneliness and things like substance abuse. Yeah, so you're right? saying if you see those things, you're experiencing depression, isolation, loneliness, and you're perhaps even addicted to something. You see that in your own kids. It's quite possible if you trace that route, you're going to find it's in their hyper focus on serving and living for themselves. That's right? exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um,
1: and. You know I, I think about this i've had this discussion with my brother as well who's um pretty high up on the corporate ladder and there's something about corporate culture that says you know of course put yourself first yeah right do do whatever whatever's necessary whatever you need to do to get whatever it is that you want what you're what you're what you're after then then do it do mm-hmm. that thing and i've had um conversation with david about sometimes uh, some of the new hires that he's had in his office, and you know, kind of fresh out of college, and one of the typical questions that he gets is uh, from them is like, "How do I? How do I get a raise?" Like, first of all, they're not even hired, mm-hmm. right? But they're already asking him, "How do I get a raise?" So, what what do I need to do to move up? So that <laughs> that's a great example of being self focused, right? And and David, you know, his his thought is like. Well, there's a much better question than that. And it and it's what can I do to make the company great? Right? How how do I help the company succeed? so so that's much more others focused. Who in the world is coaching these graduates? Um, I, I think the entire culture is oh, is okay. coaching the graduates. Right? What do I what do I need to do to get a raise? What how a do blunder. I, yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, it, it's it's an others-focused uh, approach that promotes personal success. That doesn't seem like it would make sense. Right. Um, it seems like it would be the opposite. But but that is uh, that is the truth of what yeah, we're discovering. And,
0: and these aren't generic manhood shifts that we're talking about. These are shifts that help our sons become more like Jesus, who left the ease of heaven to embrace the difficulty of earth and of the cross. Jesus, who humbled and emptied himself to live for others, not just for himself. Mm-hmm to give himself to other people, not just give himself to his own um, needs and desires. The Jesus who moved into a life of obscurity for us, who surrendered, not trying to remain in control of his own situation and who live for eternal rewards not temporary reality so to the degree in which our kids are being urged yeah. to move towards others instead of themselves is the degree in which they're becoming discipled or they're becoming more like Jesus who again who is the ultimate example for the joy set before him endured an execution for the benefit of other people's his glory but for the good of people and that's what we're, yeah. we're trying to inspire uh, at the end of our podcast episodes we find out what you're making john mm. love to find out um i'd love to find out what you're making these days sure um you know last time we did an
1: episode it was around thanksgiving time and we talked about a uh, prime rib and it can be a little intimidating to cook a prime rib you know i don't i don't i don't expect that people ran out and bought a prime rib Once they heard my description of how to cook it, but now we're closer to Christmas and you think about something like Christmas morning. How do you, how do you make Christmas morning special um, with with what you're going to eat, what you're going to cook? And and it's possible to take something very mundane, a, a kind of a common breakfast food, like French toast. And make it special. So I'm, oui. I'm, that's what I'm planning on doing. Oui. That's what oui. I'm. That's what I'm. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to make. I'm going to make French toast, Dan, but I'm going to do it in a special way. Well, let's hear it. Okay. How so special. just very quickly, there's there's two types of bread. I think that are the winners when it comes to French toast. One is brioche, which you can get uh, at Wegmans. The other is challah bread bread is, both of them are very egg-dense, right. egg-based. Okay. So you can see how that would work. Holds its form better. better. French toast, right? Yeah. So the trick is, believe it or not, you, you slice that the night before. Take that loaf, slice it the night before, and leave those slices out. Let it get a little stale. That's it? Yeah. There's a lot of moisture in those egg-based breads, <clears throat> so they can, they can stay out overnight and not turn into a rock. Gonna, they're going to be perfect for dipping in an egg custard the next morning, which I like to do with eggs, milk, vanilla extract, mm-hmm. and some cinnamon. Yeah, nailed it. Yeah, and um, let those soak in there for a good couple minutes, and then I'll sear those off uh, in butter. On a cast iron, so if you have a cast iron pan, that they, they they sear better than any other kind of pan, really. Sear those off, and then don't. It's well, especially if you. It, so here's my other tip: you take a um, a brioche loaf, cut it, cut the slices thick, cut them thick. There's two reasons. Are you mad? No,
0: you sound mad <laughs> because like, you're, because you sound mad at the <laughs> at the dudes who don't cut their bread thick enough. Guys, are you angry? Guys, listen to me. <laughs> Cut them thick
1: There's several reasons But one of them is because When you have a thick cut like that You you can actually have a a soft interior If you have a real thin slice of bread It's going to cook real quick All the way through It's going to be one texture We're looking for two textures Crispy on the outside Soft in the middle. Yeah. Did you hear how you said that?
0: Two textures. It's too harsh. Two textures. You eat, crush those <laughs> I two T's. They need to know, Dan. I know. I know. This is. You know what? you You sound more like a sensei this right now important. than <laughs> you do a dad <laughs> or a dude. You sound like.
1: All right. I'm going to wrap this up. Here we go. You got your thick slice. You you'd put it in the custard, right? Let it sit for a little bit. F- fry it off in that cast iron. And then take it out and then finish it in the oven. Finish it in the oven because you don't want to burn the outside in the cast iron. But if you finish it in the oven, it's going to cook all the way through. But the center is going to be nice and custardy and smooth and delicious. And then. So, so you do sear, flip, sear. Yep. And then take it off. And then finish them in in the oven and then of course you need you need more butter you need a little powdered sugar and you need like a great maple syrup real maple syrup don't don't go messing with Ms. Jemima. Ms. Jemima. <laughs> Miss jemima answer my miss <laughs> miss majama <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't you mess with her yeah she yeah. needs to be trifling No. With. No, no, no. It's not even maple syrup. No, it's not. Did you know she was from Syracuse? No, I did not. Yeah, Aunt Jemima. She's actually um, buried at Oakwood. That's a weird information, but she is right in the city of Syracuse. Anyway. What's the oven at? The oven at what, 300? uh, I would finish it at probably 375. Okay. Yeah, 350, 375 for just a few minutes. doesn't take long. And then, you know, um, I I like a bourbon maple syrup. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, of, a little, course. of course, a little powdered sugar. It's going to be one of the best things you've ever eaten, and you're welcome,
0: everyone. I love it. You've been listening to Maturing in Manhood, and hoping that uh, you're also, by listening, gaining a little wisdom if you're a modern dude, dad, or disciple, and uh, it's been fun being with you. We'll catch you next time. See you, everyone.